This production is brought to you by Magentrix. Magentrix is a pioneer in platforms for partner ecosystem management and partner relationship management. This is Partner Relationship Management, the ultimate channel sales podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Channel Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Bird. In the past year alone, partner ecosystems have become the hottest buzzword in the channel space. Forrester predicted an even split between channel, direct, and marketplace revenue. And 90% of IT sales will be partner-assisted before, during, and after a sale. All this to say that the channel looks shockingly different than it did just five years ago. If a vendor team fails to jump on this channel ecosystem trend, will they be left behind? Today, we're going to look at how partner ecosystems affect the channel and what channel leaders can do differently in the age of ecosystems. Today's guest brings years of business development wisdom from around the globe and from both sides of the channel. He has decades of experience building partner and channel ecosystems. He served as Microsoft's Director of Channel Strategy and Partner Marketing, and he holds a PhD from the University of Zurich. Today, he's the Vice President of Customer Success at Meridian Link. They're a digital lending platform. He's here with us today to talk about the current state of channel partner ecosystems, what you need to do differently. Please welcome Balthazar Weiss. Welcome to the show, Balthazar. It's great to have you here. Thanks a lot, Paul. And hi, everybody. I'm super excited. Uh, it's a, a great topic that's uh, uh, near and dear to me and uh, look forward to a, to a great conversation. Let's get a little bit of some of the highlights of your career as a channel chief leading ecosystem so far. So I play multiple roles from more, as you said, uh, in your introduction from the business development side to more the programmatic side. And then more recently, more sort of on the deployment, ongoing engagement, customer and partner success side. And I just, first of all, enjoy greatly working with partners, just as I like working with customers. And I think partners have sort of this thing to it where they provide you great feedback. They make you better while they typically help you build a business. And for me, that's one of the coolest thing about you know being in partner space to learn and at the same time grow together with those partners. And I can give you some examples if you want at some point during this podcast as well. Absolutely. So what about what you're doing now at Meridian Link? What's your role there? So more recently, I have been more on the customer success side, which if you think about this, is not all too different, right? In a world of SaaS, it is all about usage and engagement. And so my team and I, we focus on engaging with with customers as well as with partners because we sell both directly and Meridian Link as well as through the channel and making those customers and partners highly successful using our digital platform. And for us, whether it's partner success or customer success, we look at this fairly holistically. So everything post-sales would be on our team. So think of onboarding and training, then the ongoing engagement and growth of usage, and then the customer support or the partner support, 
as well as further down the line, the upselling and cross-selling and the renewal. So we do just everything on the customer success team in our business lending group. So very holistically, the way we look at this and the way we build the function at Meridian. So on today's topic, looking at the evolution of ecosystems, let's kind of set the stage. What does today's kind of channel ecosystem look like to you? Yeah, so I see a, a number of trends. But before we get to the trends, maybe we can talk a little bit generally the status of, of the channel as I see it, if you if you will. And the first thing I would say is, is that we see a lot of company kind of going opportunistically after this mm-hmm. and not always very intentional. To give you an example, you know, when you're at a startup, right, the first thing you want to do is make sure you integrate into other platforms. So what you do you build an API and then integrate. So you go opportunistically about those partners without thinking what else those partners potentially could do, these technology and integration partners. Mm-hmm. If you're more on the sales side and sales-led, you might also start very opportunistically just by signing up a few partners who give you lead. And that's not just for startup. If you actually think about Amazon in the very early days, and I'm giving away my age here a little bit, like in the 90s, <laughs> Amazon started with an affiliate network, right? So you could exactly. literally put a button on your website if somebody clicked on it to buy a book or a CD back then. That's what Amazon was mm-hmm. about. You got a little commission if the purchase went through, right? So they used essentially affiliates and they had hundreds of thousands of those to just generate sales. So in some ways, very opportunistically, even a, a big company like Amazon, and not necessarily always very intentional. And the question is why? And I'd say one thing is, is you know, again, as I mentioned, companies often are either kind of like product-led or sales-led and not necessarily start with the partner in mind first. They just said, hey, I have a great product. I need to integrate it. Or I have a fantastic go-to-market sales engine. How do you generate more of that? The second thing I'll say is, is that the partner function can be at times a bit misunderstood, right? It's either just, as I mentioned, seen as an integration play or a revenue play and often sometimes like sort of a necessary evil. And so I think it's important that we understand the function as it, what it really can do, the potential of it. And the last thing I want to mention is, is you see sometimes sort of a short-term thinking, right? Okay, we, we we need to close the quarter, we need to have more revenues and everything. What we do, oh, let's talk to our partners rather than sort of thinking long-term, building a sustainable moat that lets us build a company over the long term. So that's sort of, if I would have to summarize what I often see, but there are also lots of positive trends to kind of like change that, particularly more recently. So what are some of those kind of noticeable trends that you're seeing in the ecosystem space? Yeah, good question. So there's a number of them. First of all, I'd say often partner organizations today have more an expanded scope, right? So rather than just being a lead source or a source for integration, so things work well together, partners and customers can be sort of both along a whole life cycle. So partners mm-hmm. can can be used in the discovery process. So customers or prospects discover your solution. Partners are used to evaluate your solutions. You know, that old RFP is still alive and, and kicking, uh, if you will. There you go. And then along the, the process, you know, closing a deal with co-selling, Microsoft started with co-selling, I, I, I want to say in 2012 or so, so maybe 10 years ago, 
So it's it's still in its infancy if you look at the whole IT industry over time. So cold selling and then enabling a great purchasing experience and then a post sales fantastic experience where the partner will take on certain things like the ongoing management, maybe even the renewal. So that's one of the trends, an expanded scope of the partner function or the channel function, if you will. Related to that, there's a broader variety of go-to-market models, selling with partner, selling to partners, right? And then they integrate your solution and resell a package, if you will. And related to that, you know, a broader set of business models. This could be a simple MDF funds or market development funds. This could be a commission-based thing. This could be bounties. It could be a revenue share on a subscription model, so an ongoing. It could be an OEM license if you integrate into a bigger platform and so on. So a broader business model differentiation, if you will. And the last thing where this all sort of comes together in my mind is, is the relationship between a vendor and the channel and the ecosystem becomes way more bi-directional. It's not just, hey, put that bottom up on your website and then at the end of the day, we'll, we'll give you a few dollars if, if somebody buys a book from us. But it's way deeper. For example, partners helping a vendor to understand their prospect and customer base to help them with the strategy, how to deploy it and those kinds of things. So these are sort of the few trends that I'm seeing. Last point I want to make is, is it's no surprise that more recently people started talking about partner ecosystem or the chief ecosystems officer at the company, right? Where we look more from an ecosystem perspective, holistically at this, as opposed to just sort of a point solution engaging with partners. Well, you mentioned Microsoft. I worked for a couple of Microsoft Gold partners, and this is pre-Cosell. And, you know, it was really left to us as the reseller to take, you know, discovery all the way through to closure. And I can think of some sizable opportunities that I was involved with where a co-sell model would definitely have brought more authority and probably move the deal along a lot quicker. So it's interesting that you notice that trend towards more co-sell. And I saw it on the other side when I worked in the channel because it became a little bit more difficult to onboard all of our staff, to educate them, to teach them, and to get them producing revenue. So it looks like that co-sell model really did work out for Microsoft. Yeah, and even before they had the co-sell model, uh, back when I was in my last role at Microsoft, I had different roles. And in the last role, I was in the World by Partner organization. This was, you know, 2008-ish, 2010-ish, when the cloud just sort of became big. And we really had to, in some ways, disrupt our old channel, right? Before you had the software licensing model, partners would get three years upfront, uh, a cut, fairly high percentage on a three-year license model to the end customer. And then the cloud came and things changed radically. And we had to bring, you know, Microsoft is one of the most channel and partner-oriented organizations. We had to bring over 100,000 partners into wow. a new world of the cloud with new engagement model. And that was very, very disruptive in, in some sense. I mean, Look at distributor. What is the role of a distributor today versus what it was 15 years ago? 15 years ago, they had warehouses and, and, and the software CDs and, and the books from Microsoft to sell. That's not anymore the real world today in the cloud. And so it's quite interesting how dynamic things changed in the partner world or with, with the cloud and, and generally speaking, as people move more online. And you mentioned that when we first met, you mentioned it's important to look back 
at our past in order to move forward. So is that the thought behind it? Is there anything else from the past that you'd recommend that channel chiefs pay attention to? I always think it's helpful, whether that's in your personal life or in your business life, if you put things into context, if you take a step back and say, where are things today? What is different from maybe 10 years or 20 years ago? What might happen in the next five years? Although sometimes it's very difficult to to predict what's what's going to happen and so forth. So building context, I think, is helpful. And if I would have to name one thing that I think is is truly, so, so looking backwards and, and forwards, the theme that I think is really critical is, is sort of working backwards from the customer, right? And what is ultimately the customer experience? And then how do partner health drive a world cost customer experience, right? And that leads then to the next question is, is what kind of partner experience do you want to provide exactly. your partners, right? Is this just sort of, again, sort of like a, you give me a lead and I'll give you a bounty kind of engagement. It's a very sort of just simple, straightforward commercial arrangement. Or does this go way deeper that you try to understand each other's strategy, that you really build deep engagements with these partners and also understand their experience? What are they going through? What do they need to be successful? And so on. I think that is even more important. We talked about the expanded scope of partners, right? In an expanded scope and and engagement with partners, the experience becomes so much more important, if you will. For sure. So as we kind of look at the future of partner ecosystems and we look at the changes we need to make, you know, what are some of the common missteps that you think channel teams might make when they're executing their ecosystem approach? Yeah, the first thing I, I always, not always, but sometimes sort of see is that partners are often seen just very tactically, right? Very narrow. Again, it's just, I need some integration because my customers use all the systems as well, or I need to grow my revenue. Oh, let's sign up a few partners who can bring me leads. So very tactical. And I think what's really critical going forward is to think more strategically, how do you build a partner mode? And I give you an example. I used to work at Avalara, which does tax compliance. So things, you know, helping people with the transactions to calculate the sales taxes or whatever the tax type might be, and then remit those sales taxes to the government. And it was a company who were extremely focused on, on, on the channel. And early on, this was even before my time, although I came on board fairly early and went in through all the way to the IPO, we built an incredible channel And we looked at this as building a moat, meaning not just, again, to enable an integration. You need to do that, too, because Avalara wouldn't exist without transactional system, whether that's an ERP or an e-commerce platform. So we need to do that, too. But we then said, wait a second, you know, all these transactional vendors, they also could be go-to-market partners. And what kind of engagements do we want to have with them so that... People or companies pick Avalara as opposed to another vendor. And we did a really segment-specific approach and strategy that was very well thought through, about which we can talk a little bit uh, later if that's of interest. But the outcome was is that we outgrew the competition massively. When I joined Avalara in 2013 or so, we were a third of the revenue of the leader. When I left, we were over two times as big as the leader. So we completely outflanked the competition 
because we went strategically about this and built a partner ecosystem that was sustainable, that was with us, and that had a real big moat. So it was very difficult for anybody else to break into that partner ecosystem. I like that concept of calling it a, a moat because the visual aspect of it, you're completely surrounded by all of the people that are helping you grow. So if I may, real quick, if you don't mind, sure. on, on this moat theme, if you think about this product is maybe a moat for a period of time, but very few companies build a moat with a product. Google might be one of the exceptions, for example, with their search engine. They're so far ahead of everybody else, including what they do now with artificial intelligence and so forth. But many other companies, that product is uh, over time, it's just not necessarily more because other companies can innovate as well. And I have experiences myself. I you worked at Netscape for the older part of your audience. I worked at Real Networks and they all arguably had the better product compared to Microsoft. But both companies got outcompeted by Microsoft, right? Because they had a better business sure. model. So product often is not a sustainable mode. Partners, also not always, but they can if you do it the right way, if you provide a great partner experience and you're vital to these partners, then you can be over time, it can be a differentiator compared to other companies and, and competitors. Interesting. As you talk about kind of this makeup of your partner ecosystem, you know, one of the things that people have always said that you have to be able to identify and recruit the ideal partner. So how does that approach to an ecosystem level where you may have so many different types of partners filling that moat? Yeah, I mean, that's where segmentation comes in, right? And there's multiple segmentations that needs to happen in my mind. So first, you know, what are you going to do? And that goes back to the comment about starting with the customer experience. You know, like, what's the buyer journey, right? And the enterprise is completely different than, say, in the mid-market or at the lower end. And I'll get back to that in a second, but that's just one of the segmentation. The other way you can go is obviously geographically, right? Like how do you expand? Let's say you start your company in Canada where you are based, right? How do you expand? Do you build a beachhead with partners and then validate your model or do you go into Asia and Europe and other parts of the world? So a geo segmentation is very helpful and how do you tackle that? And then the third thing that comes to mind is obviously also by partner type, since you mentioned that, right? What kind of partners do you fundamentally need to be successful? Is it more on the technology side? You need to integrate with a lot of different systems, like, for example, Avalara. By the way, uh, Avalara later then also expanded into the accounting space. And I happened to lead that team at the end of my tenure there because accountants, they do often the tax compliance for yeah, businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So what kind of partner types do you need, whether on the technology side or more on the sales and marketing side is another sort of segmentation that you want to go through. So in other words, I think it's important that you understand the environment that you're operating in. And mm -hmm. by that, I mean, where your customers ultimately are, right? And how you go about this. The company I work for right now, for example, we are purely US-based, right? We don't have any partners really outside of Europe. We are getting there for some vendors that provide us data and so forth. But we are so US-focused. So, so we focus on, on the US market and, and build that up. But that's not true for many other companies because they are global in nature and so on. Absolutely. And in my background, managing channel, we basically did 
our channel management locally in Canada and the U.S., and then we used value-added distributors globally so we could spread our footprint. And that was a, a model that really worked for, for our software platform to be able to have that kind of regional representation and give people the ability to get uh, localized support and things like that. So I guess that was kind of an early ecosystem 20 plus years ago. Yeah. And for me, the ultimately critical thing is, is, is that when you go about this, is what I always recommend people do is sort of build a channel or a partner ecosystem map, really map it out. Again, starting with the customer, how do they purchase, for example? How do they get trained? How do they engage in which parts of the world? And what do they need in terms of your products and services that you offer? Again, is it just a simple integration or do they need more than that and so on? And sort of building an ecosystem map, really, and then updating them on a regular basis because you might expand your product or your services might shift into a different direction or your audience might shift. Another good example, again, if I go back to Avalara, this is where we started in the mid-market. And there it was all about, the strategy was all about dominance, right? Market share, never lose a deal, discount if you have, and so forth. And therefore, we wanted to have a lot of referral and, and reseller partners. But then we expanded into the enterprise and also went downwards. In the enterprise, the strategy was more sort of opportunistic because the platform wasn't 100% ready for some enterprise functionality. And also, there wasn't too much implementation work to be done. So we expanded more on the accounting side into the uh, enterprise market. And similarly, on the lower end, where we expanded, it was more a defensive move to avoid disruption from the low end. So we started working with the likes of BigCommerce and, and Shopify and other transactional systems. And... We figured out that, you know, there might be not as much money as in the mid-market in the enterprise. So therefore, we had a different go-to-market strategy where we simply just integrated our functionality or parts of our functionality into a Shopify or into big commerce and sort of had an OEM type of relationship with them. So that's what I mean with building a whole map, if you will, and a segment-specific map of your partner ecosystem and then you know, regularly review and adjust it as, as you learn and as you move forward. And that's kind of a different way of looking at kind of a channel strategy or an ecosystem strategy is to really look at it like a map because it allows you to, again, more visualize the concepts and practices that you should be engaging in. So it has one more advantage in my mind is because it helps you prioritize, right? It's because you can't typically do everything at the same. You have this big map now, right? You see... You know, if, if you take a comparison, a world map, right? And, and you can't travel to all the countries at the same time, right? No. And so you can't engage with all the different partner types or different segments at the same time. So a map, if you have sort of a holistic view, you then can say, okay, what is most important for the next six months? What is next important over the next year and two? And what's more long-term? So it helps you prioritizing a lot in my life. Sorry, I interrupted you there. Oh, no, no worries at all. It definitely, I was saying it shows your background from a strategy perspective working at Microsoft. And basically what you're saying from Avalair is that their market dominance, the, you know, the best way to defend yourself is to have a good offense, to make sure that you're taking as much business as you can off the table away from your competitors. So let's talk a little bit more about how people can thrive in this age of ecosystems. 
there was a report from IDC back in 2021 that said 30% of partner-to-partner engagements would involve more than two parties, right? So you'd be having, when you're talking about going after a customer, that 30% of the time, we're going to have more than one partner inside of that sales process. So how do you think vendors can encourage collaboration across their ecosystems? You know, is there any way to innovate or spark that collaboration between members of the ecosystem? Great question. I think the first thing I would say is, why is that? You know, why do you have suddenly two, three, maybe even four partners involved with the same customer, right? Mm -hmm. That's incredible because before usually had one partner bringing you a deal or you had one integration and, and so forth. Now suddenly we want a particular customer, but now you have three, four partners involved with the same account. And that's stunning. And I believe the reason of that is, is, is that the proliferation of SaaS application. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. Like if you look at statistics, like a mid-sized company or in the enterprise, how many SaaS application they use it's dozens, if not hundreds. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, you have to make sure you work nicely with all these other applications, or at least with a subset that are relevant to your own solution, right? Which is why you see so many companies shipping APIs so that you can integrate them with all these different solutions. But the fact is, is and that's what I mean with starting with, with the customer. Customers have Dozens, if not hundreds, subscriptions to all sorts of services. They might use Salesforce for CRM. Then they might use HubSpot on the marketing side. Zendesk maybe for ticketing. Then Airtable, let's say, for development and, and onboarding. And on and on and on you go, right? And so that is, in my mind, the reason why you often have multiple partners involved with the very same account, right? Now, to your question sort of how do you address this, right? Uh, knowing now that it's often not just one partner, but, but multiple partner in the equation, I think it becomes critical to have what I call a partner community, right? So that you don't always just, you as a vendor engage with partner one, you as a vendor engage with partner two, you as a vendor engage with partner three, and keep those kind of separate. But you bring this community somehow together. That could be many ways. Yeah, you could have a partner newsletter. You could do gatherings where you bring all partners together at an event, let's say. You do webinars and training, whatever that might be, right? But that you build a community and do this mindfully and proactively, right? So that they are sort of part and they see, oh, wait a second. I'm not the only partner here. There's a partner two and a partner three and a partner four. And it's actually beneficial if I understand what their role and function is in relation to an account. So this idea of a partner community and building that as a vendor seems to me really vital. Absolutely. But they used to call it partner conflict, right? And it was one of the things that everyone was fighting was let's keep both partners on an island. You know, we don't want two people, you know, fishing in the same pond. And it seems like the ecosystem now has completely reversed that when it comes to now almost you're not encouraging conflict. You're now encouraging collaboration as opposed to worrying about channel conflict. I couldn't have said this any better. You're totally spot on, Paul, here. So one of the things that we where we started was you talk about, you know, these new concepts when it comes to things like co-selling and collaborating. And we talk about building this community of partners. 
So any other concepts you think that channel leaders should really consider as they're developing their ecosystems and getting them to thrive? The one that comes to mind, and it's so basic, it's almost sometimes lost, but I see this interestingly quite often, which is people just think because I have a need to work with a partner, because that partner might either have a platform I need to integrate with, or they have a great customer base I want to tap into, that me as a vendor, I'll think like, because I have a need, they also have a need. And that's not always the case. And so understanding what value do you bring to the table to these partners is absolutely critical. I literally have seen it where people would run against the wall and say, hey, why are you not picking up my phone? Why are you not partnering with us? We have such a fantastic solution. And these partners like, I don't understand what you're doing, you know, like, and, and why would I spend resources on you as opposed to many other things I could do? So this very basic idea of being clear, what is the value you bring to the partner as opposed to the partner to you? And that's this bi-directional understanding, if you will, is absolutely fundamental in my mind to make things work. And sometimes you have to just realize and admit to yourself, look, probably not a good match here, right? I gave you the example with Avalara where there were some People internally who, who say, look, we should sign up Infosys and Ripro and all these, you know, Accenture, these big guys who do big implementation. But the matter of fact is, is that almost all implementation back when I was a Valara were super easy and maybe, you know, a few hours, maybe a few thousand dollars. And why would an Accenture invest in a business like that? And so mm-hmm. having this realization that maybe that partner type, these big SIs, Back then, this obviously changes. Avalara becomes a, a more mature platform and, and everything. But back then, it was just, just really relevant. And, and having that courage to say, maybe in five or 10 years from now, as we build out our platform and make it more versatile and more deeper, maybe at that point, the global SI plays an important role. But today, it doesn't. It's also really that, that, that insight that not every partner is necessarily a good partner that you want to work with at a particular given stage. So let's take it even further then. Partner stack. They say that competitors are now colleagues. So what are your thoughts about also going a step further and collaborating with your competitors? So first, let's define what, what usually is meant by partner stack. With partner stack, at least where I use it and, and sort of the people around me is, is that will be sort of the systems and solutions you use internally to manage those partners. Because we said, right, the scope is, in, is broadening how you engage. So now you have to think about how you train those partners, uh, what kind of certification management do you have, if you have certificates, right? You know, gold partner, silver partner, platinum partner, and so forth. Then questions like, you know, how do you pay them? So how do you manage partners from a payment perspective, particularly if you have different go-to-market modes? In some cases, you might share revenues. In other cases, you might just pay a one-time bounty and on and on and on and then different percentages. So you need a partner system to manage that as you scale up. And it goes on and on. Like, how do you manage leads? You know, uh, how do they flow into whatever CRM you use if there's something different partners? So that's what normally is meant with a partner stack, right? What internal technology do you use to, to scale your partner ecosystem and engage with them, right? And obviously, what's critical is and often 
also not used is sort of an underlying notification and an alert function so that you can reach out to your partners. And give you an example, again, back from my OLR times. We developed an alert that, so in our case, if a partner brought three deals or more in a given calendar years, they will get a higher commission rate, if you will. Okay. They have to bring three deals or $25,000, right? And so we said, wouldn't it be cool if they brought us a second deal that it automatically sends them an alert to say, hey, guys, you're one deal away from <laughs> moving up in your payment schedule, if you will. That's like yeah. Delta Airlines sending you an email to say, hey, 2,000 more miles and you are gold status. You know, Why don't you book a flight with us, right? So those exactly. kinds of things. But that's what we mean with partner stack. And I'm not sure, is, is your question related to that? Well, I'm just wondering if we go beyond now, where we're now encouraging our channel members, people that are in our channel, to collaborate together. Do we take this a step further and start collaborating with our competitors in the space too? So looking at the companies that you were dominating at Avalara, and do you go and now start collaborating with people that may be competitive, but potentially don't fill, you know, you have uh, an area where they fill a gap that you don't. Is there a purpose to extending that ecosystem to also include your competitors? Yeah. A few thoughts there. First, I'm sure it exists that you do deep collaboration with your key competitors. I have seen it very rarely actually work. And that goes to the principle number one I have learned when I was at Microsoft in the business development area where we did global deals, what's now the Microsoft Teams group. And the number one predictor whether something will be successful, a partnership over the long term, was strategic alignment. And yes. competitors, generally speaking, are not strategic aligned, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't be competitors, right? So it violates that principle of... And I give you an example, right, from this Microsoft Teams, you know, early on, we wanted to go against Avaya and Cisco and Nortel, who back then used to own uh, enterprise telephony, if you will, right, and all the, you know, web conferencing. And we were very deliberate, that goes back to having a mindful strategy, we said, Sure, we can try working with them. We did a, a JV with, with Nortel, invested like 100 million and didn't go anywhere because, again, Nortel ultimately wanted to control call control as well. And, and so there was a compete aspect to it. So that didn't work well. But what did work well is to partner with companies, think of Logitech, think of Jabra, think of Polycom. These partnerships still exist today. Why? Because there was a very good strategic alignment. They didn't necessarily want to control the desktop, but they wanted to ship great conferencing phones and other types of endpoints. And so it was a fantastic strategic fit. And Polycom, together with Microsoft, sells millions of devices into companies and businesses that use Microsoft Teams to this day. And that's like 15 years later. Strategic alignment is really critical. Now, can it work? that you work with competitors? Yes, but I think then what becomes critical is what you said in between the lines, which is they must have something you don't have. So they feel a gap that you don't have. And then you can say, okay, let's bring that competitor in because let's say we don't have this feature or this functionality or we don't cover that market or whatnot. So then I can see it happen. But it's not easy if you're not strategically well aligned, if that makes sense. 
And I'm sure there are a number of channel chiefs right now that are shaking their heads. Never would they ever collaborate with a competitor. But one of the things that we are seeing is this emergence of a new role in the company, you know, a, a chief ecosystem officer or something along those lines. Do you think that will replace the channel chief or do you think it'll be somebody that will work with the channel chief? How do you think those roles will be tied together or do you think it's simply an evolution that the channel chief now will be kind of the chief ecosystem officer? Yeah, I'm more in the camp of evolution. And for me, actually, something else, I get this question asked in some different ways sometimes. But for me, what's really critical is not the title. Is it the channel chief or the chief partner officer or chief ecosystem officer, <laughs> whatever it is? What's much more important is, is two things. Number one, where's the board and the executive team, the CEO particularly, sitting at? Do they understand the partner ecosystem and partners and channels in general? Do they look at this as a moat building critical part of a go-to-market strategy? Or is it more to, ah, I need to end the quarter with, with two million more, get me some more deals more tactically. So that's one thing. Where's the board and what's the experience of the board and the CEO as far as partners and channels is concerned? Because if you have that support, Everything else flows from there and it's so much easier. Well, Laura is again a good example. So by the way, is 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 Microsoft, right? There is an inherent understanding that partners are vital. And not just as a lip service, but they truly are vital to the business. Therefore, we invest in it, we believe in it, we are in it for the long term, and so on. The second piece of it, so executive input or a stake in it is really critical. When I say executive, I mean also the board. Ultimately, the second piece is, is organizationally, how does the partner organization fit into it, right? Is it just sort of a low level function somewhere deep down on the marketing? Then I can guarantee you it's mainly used as a leaching source, or is it more sort of a top level function, typically reporting into the CEO or at least into the CRO and the chief revenue officer? So what's the reporting structure and the organizational position of the partner? These are way more important things in my mind, as opposed to the exact title of the person who leads that department, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So, I mean, measurement of success, right? What are the key performance indicators that you would suggest in order to measure the success and engage the health of the ecosystem? Right. If we get through all the tactical side and we built the moat, how do we know it's working? Any recommendations on the types of metrics people should be monitoring? Yeah. First, I will say there's a bit of a confusion sometimes in the marketplace and in this community about what is what. And you often hear partner influenced versus partner sourced versus partner driven or partner managed. And I think for every organization, that's the first thing you want to do. You want to define those what does that mean? Partner influenced, in my mind, but that's different with different organizations, is sort of the lowest level, right? It's just a partner might say, hey, you check that the vendor out. We have heard good things about them. Partner source will be the next thing. And, and obviously, then you have metrics around those, right? Partner source means like they really bring you a deal and include you in that, maybe all the way to co-selling. And that's where very partner-driven comes in when the partner drives the whole engagement and you just go along the ride, if you will. 
And then finally, partner managed as it's more in the sell to partner when you sell to to partners and they manage everything, the, the rest. So that's when I first want to say there's often terms are used a little bit differently. And I'm not saying the way I describe this is the right way. That's just one way. Now, to get to your question, you then obviously have metrics to these different motions, influenced, source, driven, and managed. And I could go on for hours to describe the different KPIs used. And we can start at the top level. What's the revenue contribution to the total revenue brought by partners? So if the total revenue is, is 1 million, to make this simple, 100 million, and the partners bring 30 million, that means they are 30% of the total. So that's what one statistic that's really, really important. But I tell you what, rather than sort of rattling down to all the different KPIs, what I found one of the most interesting KPI metrics that predicts success is you understanding of the partner organization and how many of those you have trained and are familiar with your solution. We okay. track this at multiple companies, specifically also at Avalara, and you have similar concept, right? At Microsoft, where you can be certified on Azure or whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. That is really critical that they understand what you are doing. That is sort of one metric I think is really critical to measure whether you'll be successful. Because if they, if on the partner side, they understand your solution and they might be even certified on it and they can talk to it, it's a totally different level as opposed to them like, yeah, I heard of those guys and maybe I, I give them a lead here or there, if that makes sense. So I'm sure I didn't comprehensively answer your questions around KPIs, but there's so many, but... Uh, you know, starting at a top level, the revenue contribution, but more on a tactical level. I believe it's very important to measure the know-how and understanding and the familiarity with your solution among partners. So you've shared some really great advice today. What do you think some of the challenges an organization would face if they simply don't adopt a partner ecosystem? What pitfalls do you think they would fall into? Well, first of all, you know, they might miss opportunities, simple as that, right? I remember a colleague of mine back at Avalara who, who have tons of respect for, he said, in the internet, you don't need partners anymore, really, right? It's all about direct because in our, you can reach everybody directly. And maybe that's true in a super idealistic world, right? Where you have a huge database of millions of businesses and it's just email bombard them. But that's where all your trouble starts because these email campaigns typically don't work and the success and the performance yep. of these email campaigns can be super low, right? You need to have a deeper engagement and everything. So you might miss some opportunities. That's simple as that. But I, I also, to discuss the previous point, you might miss on building a moat. That's really critical for a long-term business to have a moat and a differentiator. And I give you an example again about Lara. We got at the end when I left over 50% of net new deals from partners, right? And that's just unbelievable. And that's true for all the companies as well, right? Where they just, they built that mode that, and, and we knew that some of those deals came to us where the competition even didn't know about this because they didn't work with partners. So the building that mode is another aspect. And then maybe the last point I want to mention here is learning, learning, learning. Partners can really be a source. If you do it the right way, there can be a source that you learn from the marketplace in a very scalable way. Because these partners get exposed to lots of prospect and customer where you may not have a relationship with. And they might come to you and provide you useful feedback where they say, look, this product doesn't 
fit the following uh, scenarios. It's not a good fit for these customer segments. We hear this from our So learnings from the partners, I find sometimes also underestimated because there's so much insights these partners can bring to the table that just alone for that reason, it's worthwhile engaging with partners. Well, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate all of the advice you gave us today. It was fantastic. So thank you, Balthazar. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And thank you again for your time. Thanks, Paul, for having me. And you do great things. So really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to you today and to your audience. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Alright guys, thank you for listening to the Ultimate Channel Sales Podcast. Please don't forget to join us next time. For more information, please visit channelsalespodcast.com. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to our podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode today, please leave us a five-star rating. From the Apple Podcast app, just select our show, scroll down to the rating and review section, and click write review. And don't forget to share with your friends or professional network, anyone who to enjoy it. See you next time on the Ultimate Channel Sales Podcast. This production is brought to you by Magentrix. Magentrix is a pioneer in platforms for partner ecosystem management and partner relationship management.